0: Good morning, Village Church East. Good morning. My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's great to see you here this morning. Uh, we're excited uh, because this is, I've heard, a uh, special day, especially if you're a mom. So for all you moms out there, happy Mother's Day. Um, you have sacrificed and given and... Um, do, do you know how much it, t- it costs to raise one child, by the way? Anyone want to take a guess? From, from zero until graduation from college. you want to take a guess? Seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, and no gas to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars per kid. I've got four, so I'll be asking for a raise next year. And uh, if you didn't, uh, if you didn't know that, then uh, you probably have been living somewhere else because. Raising children takes a lot of sacrifice, but it's not just financial, it's emotionally draining, it's challenging, especially if they don't leave home and they stick around until they're 35 years old. No offense to all you 35-year-olds who play games in your mother's basements, but it's time to grow up. Um, no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Uh, it, is a, it is a great privilege to be a parent to a child, but moms have a special place in their children's hearts. And uh, I'm pleased to say that my mom's here today. Mom, there she is right back there. Hi, Mom. Yeah. So my sister brought her. So thank you, Jenna, for bringing my mom down to see us. Um, Yeah. So for all you moms out there, uh, thank you from all of us who have received uh, such gifts and such sacrifices. Uh, We wouldn't be the same were it not for you. And uh, so as a special gift, and by the way, I sat down with our leadership and I said, hey, what should we do for our moms? Should we do, because we did something a little special last year, if you were here, um, you know what we did last year, and I won't tell you what that is, but so this year I thought, should we, do, should we do flowers, should we do little seeds they can plant in their garden, like moms like to garden and stuff like that, should we do something different than what we did last year? And all the MDs said, no, so we're going to do the exact same thing as we did last year, all you moms on your way out. And this applies to moms and those of you that are not moms, but you serve other people by helping them with their children. This applies to you ladies as well. Because there's a lot of you that are moms expecting or moms that, that, uh, that don't have kids and you have just adopted other kids as your own. So we honor all of you. If you're investing in other people's children in the area of motherhood, God bless you. And so these gifts are for you. You can pick these up on the way out. This is a little uh, little gift card for you from Starbucks. So it actually says, uh, Happy Mother's Day. Uh, we love you a latte. So uh, just go ahead and take that. That's Kathy. Oh, Kathy. Thank you, Mom. And uh, these are for you. Uh, it has a little advertisement on the back. We're actually going to ha- We ordered a lot of these, and we're, we're going to tell you in a few... Uh, few Well, actually, maybe even next week, how we can use these as ministry tools Uh, But anyway, today they're for you moms, so stop by and uh, grab one of those Um, if you are busy raising kids or busy raising other people's kids, uh, especially if you're like a teacher that raises so many other people's kids. Like, God bless you, Diane. I don't know what's wrong with you, but (laughs) it takes a village or one special lady. So... Uh, I would like to begin our service by praying for you moms today. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Lord, I'm grateful for the day. I'm grateful that we get to spend one special day out of the year to, to focus on these wonderful blessings that you've put into our lives. Uh, each one of us, whether we have our moms still here or whether they are uh, gone uh, and passed and with you in glory, Lord, we are we are grateful for the the investment that they have made into our lives to make us who we are today. And as we struggle to do the same for our kids, Lord, we ask that you would give our moms wisdom. Help them to never lose that sacrificial heart that you have put into the DNA of moms. Help them to hold on to you and know that you are with them no matter what they go through or what their kids bring to them to deal with the next. Thank you for the way that you have instilled a very honorable position in our moms, and how you throughout scripture honor moms. So Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to live in this world and make it better in the way that we mirror your heart to honor the moms around us. So we start here today, and we honor them. Thank you for them. Bless them. Give them all the strength and wisdom they need to make those split-second decisions to know how to raise their kids well. And when we drop the ball, Father, I pray that you'll help them remember that grace is always available and your mercies are new every morning. So, Father, thank you for them. Bless them. And now as we open your word, may we, Lord, have your mind and your spirit open our hearts to what you would want to say to us, Father, today. Help us to receive it with with grace, humility, and a willingness to change. In Jesus' name, amen. One final thing before we go any further. I just want to say today is an extra special day, not just because it's Mother's Day, uh, but because um, these flowers that you see on the platform here represent a year ago uh, this month that Dorothy passed away. And uh, so she was very special to us, very dear to all of us. We had her Christmas tree at Christmas, and now we have these flowers to honor her uh, today. So thank you for bringing them in today. They're gorgeous. Um, So, nice job, and it's kind of like having Dorothy with us this morning, so that's pretty cool. All right, you ready to dive in? Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 28. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with the story of Jacob. Now, if you know anything about Scripture, you'll know there's three names that are typically put together all the way through the Bible, from, uh, from the time of Abraham all the way to the end of the book. And that is Abraham, help me here. Isaac and Jacob. These are three very important characters in Scripture. Three uh, individuals who changed um, not just the Jewish nation, but have impacted our lives even today. And so, this study that we've been going through, we've dealt with Abraham, we've dealt with Isaac, and now we get to Jacob, and the apple has fallen far from the tree. With Jacob, the two stories that we've studied already, do you remember what they are? Have they been good or bad? Bad. On a scale of one to ten, Jacob has responded like an extraordinary child in the family. We'll call that ten. And one, I'd trade him for a cat. How many people think he's more of a one? Well, any tens here? No. Is there anybody that would like to take Jacob home? No. Jacob has stolen his brother's birthright. He's stolen and deceived his father for his brother's blessing, and his mother has helped him do all of it. Jacob has proven to be a very unethical individual, a very deceitful individual. Last week we played a game, and some of you liked the game, so we're going to play it again today, all right? It's the sixth sense moment. Now, when I said that last week, you know what sixth sense moment is, isn't it? It's where you, you watch the whole movie and at the end you, you go, holy smokes, he's dead, right? Oh, if you haven't watched Sixth Sense, by the way, I just blew it for you. But uh, at, the end of the, at the end of the message, there's going to be a little twist. And so the game last week was, how old were they? Do you remember how old they were? Seven. Jacob and Esau were twins. How old were they? Seven. 70 years old. Now, anyone who reads the story would go, get out of here. These guys are acting like children, Right. But no, they're apparently acting like 70-year-olds. How many 70-year-olds do we have here, by the way? Any 70? It's bad for your generation. I just want you to know. Sorry, dude. Yeah, Esau and Jacob are both acting like children. So the twist last week was how old were they? This twist, there is a twist this week, and here's the game. You ready for the big question? All right, here's your question. I know you like this. By the end of the sermon today, your goal is to tell me who acts the most unreasonable. All right, we're going to go through the next story. It's really an amazing one. Who in this story, who in this series of events in Jacob's life now, acts the most unreasonable? You up for it? Good to go? All right, let's go. Here's where we got, where we got to already. Isaac had to pass on the blessing. You remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God promised a nation to... Abraham, that'd be like the sand on the shore, the stars in the sky. That would represent the upcoming Jewish nation. Isaac's job was to guard that blessing from Abraham that has passed on to him. He was a conduit to make sure that it got to the right person. And he thought that was Esau. He thought that was Esau. That's why when Jacob stole it, he trembled greatly. You remember that from last week? So Isaac was a conduit. He would become the father, like Abraham, of this great nation, blessed by God, blessed to serve others. The land that would stretch all around him was promised to his descendants. And inevitably, he didn't know this, but we do now, the final redeemer of the world would come through this line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the way through until we get Jesus Christ. This is a really important thing to pass on. And Isaac's only job in life was to make sure this blessing got to the right kid so that they could pass it on to their kids and their kids and so on and, and so on. So in, Isaac, in Genesis 28, verse 1, Isaac does this. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, saying, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Now Isaac blessed who in this passage of Scripture? It's right in front of you. Jacob, And who was he wanting to bless? It's interesting to me that he gives the world's biggest blessing to Esau, which was typical. The firstborn usually gets like double everything and the biggest blessing of all. When Esau came in crying, he was saying, have any left for me? And there wasn't a lot left to bless him with. So Esau decides that he's going to murder his brother. And, Jake, uh, and, and Isaac and Rebecca get together and they say, okay, whatever we've done in the past, we don't want our kid dead. So, we've got to protect the blessing. And the blessing right now was not with Esau, it was with Jacob. And Isaac's only duty in life was to make sure that blessing was protected. So he calls in Jacob, and he says, Jacob, run. Run away, because your brother wants to kill you. And if that happens, the blessing is dead. So Jacob says, I can't let that happen regardless of how you got this, Jacob. I got to bless you and honor the rightful heir legally. And legally, Jacob had the birthright and he had the blessing, and Isaac had to give in. Can you imagine the emotions going through this father right now? I mean, he's probably really ticked off at his old, at the Esau. He's probably really ticked off at Esau that he wants to kill Jacob. And he's probably really more ticked off at Jacob for stealing it and messing up this whole thing in the first place. But Isaac has to be faithful to the legal, uh, to the legal way things were done. He has to continue to take care of Jacob. Because now Jacob has the blessing. So he, re- he goes on in verse 3. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you, look at this now, church, may he give you the blessing of Abraham, my father. May he give that to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land in your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. How much do you think Isaac's heart was breaking when he said these words? What about Esau? What was Esau doing? Esau was plotting against Jacob. (laughs) Esau was waiting for his opportune moment to take Jacob's life. In fact, every time you read about Esau from here on forward, it always says, when Esau saw. In other words, when he saw what happened, he's plotting trying to figure out the way to get his foot in the door. Look at this, Genesis 28.6. When Esau saw, Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him away to marry Rebekah's brother's daughter. He sees this. Because Isaac says, you've got to get away from here, Jacob. Go marry Laban's kid. Laban has some girls over there. Go marry them. You'll be safe with Laban. When Esau saw that, he reacted. And here's what he did in Genesis 28.8. Again, so when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, Sister of Nebioth. Do you know what that means? Esau has already been married for 40 years. Jacob has not been married yet. Esau already has two wives that has caused his family, his mom and dad, great heartache. They were both what nation? What nationality? You remember? They were both Hittites. Esau decides he's going to take another wife. And he decides he's going to take a wife from the daughters of who? Ishmael. Now, Ishmael was a favorite in the family or not a favorite? Not a favorite. Abraham sent Ishmael away. Esau decides, I have a lot in common with Ishmael because as Ishmael has been banished, so have I. And so I'm going to go marry an Ishmaelite uh, daughter. Now, keep in mind, he's over 70 here. And he's still looking to make a statement in his family. I think he's looking to make his parents even more miserable. And by the way, lest you think that the Ishmaelites have, have, uh, have come and started making a name, an honorable name for themselves, after Jacob has 12 sons, his last son would be Joseph. Who, did Joseph. who did Joseph's brothers sell him to after they beat the tar at him and threw him in a pit? They sold him to a band of traveling Ishmaelites. Esau knew that Ishmael was not well respected in the family. And they've been plotting against this family for years. And so Esau decides, I'm going to go marry an Ishmaelite. That'll teach him. How's Jacob reacting? Well, Jacob left. He has the birthright and the blessing, and now he's on the run. Esau comforts himself. Remember that verse? He comforts himself for how he's going to kill Jacob. Imagine having such a down day that you're thinking to yourself, I need some wonderful thing to think about. For me, it would be like in a stream with a fly rod waiting for a rise. That would be my comforting thought. You know what the comforting thought for Esau was on a bad day? Should I strangle him? How would that go? Should I, should I shoot him with a bow and arrow? How would that go? Should I push him in front of a charging horse? Yeah, that sounds painful. And that's what Esau thought about to comfort himself. Esau's in a very dark place. Rebecca is so fearful that she will lose these boys forever. She tells Jacob, get out of Dodge. Run away. And Esau, uh, Isaac agrees. Esau can't be talked down from this ledge. So run as fast as you can with only the clothes on your back. And that's how Jacob leaves home. He leaves with nothing but the clothes on his back. He's got the blessing of God. <laughs> He's got the family blessing. He's got the family birthright. He's got this fortune that started with Abraham, went to Isaac, and now Jacob has all of it. And he can't spend it. It's like having a bank account with a billion dollars in it, and you forgot the bank account number. It's like losing your ATM card. You got all these riches, and you can't use it. Jacob's on the run, broken and alone. He's terrified to go home. He's ill-prepared. He had to leave quickly. He's not sure who Laban is. He doesn't know his future. He doesn't know what he's running into. Would he ever come home again? Would he ever see his mom and dad again? How would he live? He now has no money, no plans, and nobody. He is alone. All alone and on the run for his life. And here is the message of the day. <laughs> this night that we're going to read about in Jacob's life. In spite of Jacob's stupidity, God appears to Jacob to alleviate his greatest fears. Look at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Haran is an interesting place because this is where Abraham stopped on his way into the promised land, and this is where his dad died. Remember? He waited there until his father passed away. And then he journeyed into the promised land. By the way, do you remember... How old Abraham was when he made his way into Haran and into the promised land? Want to take a guess? He's about in his 70s. And how old is Jacob when he finds his way toward Haran? In his 70s. At this point, it's difficult to see anyone like Jacob could even be related to Abraham. And yet, this is the same place Jacob travels to. Same age Abraham was when he came into the land. Now Jacob is running in fear from the land. Now, why did he stop in the middle of a place and have a nap, which is what happened? This is, uh, this is not normal. In the ancient Near East, typically you would stop at a family's house, and if you didn't know a family, you'd stop at a stranger's house. How many of you are familiar with couchsurfing? I didn't know anything about it until recently, yeah. Yeah, couchsurfing apparently is an up-and-coming thing where you literally walk through town, find somebody who's willing to open their house to you, sleep on the couch overnight, and then leave in the morning. There's no, no money is exchanged. It's just a, an, a, an aspect of hospitality. Now, I don't know about you, but I typically tell my children to kind of avoid those kind of uh, issues, right? Uh, but we, we break all the rules today. When I grew up, it was like, don't get into a stranger's car. Now you can get an Uber with anybody. You, know, you don't even know who they are. And don't stay at a stranger's house. And now you can sleep on the couch of some mass murder. Anyway, anyway, so... It probably will never happen. No, nothing bad could happen from that. In this day, though, couch surfing was a normal thing. If you didn't have a family to stay with, you would just stay with a, uh, somebody else. Hospitality was high on the list. So the question is, why doesn't Jacob stay in somebody's house? My guess is one of two reasons. One, he doesn't know anybody there. But more likely, the answer is two, he's afraid of everybody. He doesn't know who's related to who, who's heard the story of what. He doesn't know who knows. He just stole his family's birthright and blessing. Either way, Jacob is alone in a field and finds a place to finally stop and rest. Verse 11. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place To sleep. On his first night on the run, he's afraid of what might be coming in the night, including, by the way, his brother. Uncertain of his destination, forced to sleep on the ground outside, he certainly must have thought to himself at this point if there was anything at all to the stupid blessing and birthright he had in his back pocket, because he sold everything to steal it. And here at Haran, God gives Jacob a great blessing. Verse 12. He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now this ladder could be a ramp, it could be a set of stairs, but as he's sleeping, he has this dream where angels are going up and down to, to heaven. This could be a picture of the angels taking the prayers of humans to the ear of God. Um, it, it, It could be a variety of things. There's a lot of commentaries that think, like, why did he see angels ascending and descending? At the very least, what this is, is it gives him a picture that there is connection now between the earth and the heavenly realm. And at the top of the stairs stood God himself. Either way you go, however you want to look at this, why this this dream came to be like a stairs with angels going up and down it. Either way, Jacob is given a view behind the curtain to see God at work regardless of human activity. Regardless of what humans do to mess up the world, God is always at work doing and weaving together a greater plan. And God being at the top of the stairs means we all report to him, even the angels. Lest you think that your life doesn't have a bill attached to it, it does. You will stand before God someday. He is the final one in charge. And when the play is ended, and the final orchestra plays its final note, and the curtains close, there's only one person on that stage, and it is Jesus Christ. And all of us must stand before Him someday. This is a great picture of that scene. Read on verse 13. And Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Esau's trying to kill. Jacob's terrified that he did the wrong thing and the promise is going to go away. Rebekah is probably resentful and fearful of what she has done. Esau's thinking murder, murder, murder. And what does God do? God gives a blessing to apparently the guy he had planned to give it to this whole time. No change. God says, I will give. Total control, right on plan. The promise to Jacob must also be identical to the promise given to Abraham, his grandfather, years ago. And so it, so it goes. Genesis 28, verse 14, next verse. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. It's almost identical wording to what God spoke to his grandfather years before this. And you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is the Abrahamic blessing. Jacob is being confirmed by God as the right heir of the promise. God is saying, your descendants will be blessed. He doesn't look at Jacob and say, Jacob, you're a real disappointment. He doesn't look at Jacob and say, you've messed up my plans. This was always meant for Esau. And through your deceit, now i got to change everything. He looks at Jacob and says, Jacob, your descendants will be blessed. You will receive the blessing. And you will become a great nation. It's also interesting that God finishes this part of this with a very interesting phrase. Look at verse 15, the next verse. God says, and he did not say this to Abraham. He didn't say it to Isaac. But he says it to Jacob. Behold, God says, I am, what does he say, church? I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done all that I have promised. Now let me park here for a second and ask you a very simple question. If you've been tracking with me, I've got to ask you this. How does that strike you? Does that seem weird to you? Doesn't it seem like a God who is in control of everything and wants us to obey and follow his will, doesn't it seem to you like this would be a great place for him to give Jacob a wonderful, angelic, divine lecture? Like if you keep doing this stuff, Jacob, you're going to mess stuff up. i got a wonderful future plan for you and for Isaac. Stop messing stuff up. But he doesn't do this. Instead, God says, and Jacob, by the way, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. I'm going, to, I'm going to walk right beside you. And, and by the way, this phrase has never yet been written in Scripture until now. And it's given to Jacob. God is a keeper of the promise. And he gives this promise to the thief, promising to never leave him, promising to never forsake him. And by the way, it would be 20 years before Jacob comes back to the land because he's on the run. He's fearful for his life, and he's on a 20-year journey. He would be almost 100 years old before he comes back to the land. And by the way, he will never see his father and mother again. Jacob is fearful. He's alone. Maybe remorseful, probably not. I don't know. But I do know this. God loves him and has a blessing prepared just for him. Verse 16. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. Have you ever been in a space and you think to yourself, God's not even here? My life is so low that God. Am I loose? Am I loose? Low battery? No, it always has it on. Oh, okay. I'll just put it in my pocket. Can try it again? Sorry about that, everybody. Just trying to keep you awake. Is that working now? Better? All right, let's see how long this goes. We always have one or two demons we have to exercise on a Sunday morning. Um, Jacob will, will, will be 100 years old before he comes back to the land. And he would never see his father and mother again. And so he, he meets the Lord in this place and he says, I didn't even know the Lord was here. And this is something that I, I just wanted to park from. It. I'm not surprised the mic went weird there because, um, because I wasn't planning on saying this and I wrote it in last minute, so maybe it really applies to you. If you feel like you're in a place where you've messed up things royally and you're all alone and nobody knows what's down deep in here. And if they did, they'd forsake you. You need to know if God sets His love on you, you're never alone. And for all prodigals, they might be chided along the way, but they're always welcome home. Jacob could come home at any time. And you think after this experience, he would. He doesn't. Just to let the cat out of the bag a little bit. But he should, right? This is his one-on-one time with God. Alone and afraid in the middle of the night. Jacob sees God. And you'd think... That would be a moment that changes him. For you that are wondering what, to, what comes next and you think to yourself, you're all alone. Nobody knows what I've done. I've been kicked out. I've been alone. And if they knew and I'm still here, they'd, they'd kick me out and I'd be alone. If you think you're in a place where no one knows your shame, you need to understand God's been with you the entire time. He knows where you've been. He knows what you've done. And he loves you regardless. This is what he's telling Jacob. He reminds Jacob he's with us even here in these places. Let me give you a verse that says this really well from Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make a bed in Sheol, you're there. If I, that's death, by the way. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely darkness will cover me and light about me will be as light. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. In other words, church, if you want to get away from God, it is an impossible task. You can't run far enough. You can't dig a hole deep enough. God will go with you wherever you go, especially if his love is laid on you. And I'm here to tell you the way home is not too far. This is a place, by the way, where this phrase is used first I am with you. But when Jesus arrived on the earth, you remember one of the names we, uh, the angels gave to Jesus Christ? You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. All the way through, Jesus reminds us I am with you. I am with you. I am the good shepherd. I am with you. I take care of my sheep. And by the time you get to the end of the book, Revelation, you know some of the last phrases in the book of Revelation? One of them is, I am with you. In fact, in Revelation 21, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming from heaven and the old things are passed away. He shall wipe every tear away from their eyes and he will be with them and be their God. God never leaves us. You may think you're alone, but you're sorely mistaken because God is with you wherever you go. Verse 17, Jacob was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There's none, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And you think to yourself at this moment, Shazam, Jacob has changed. Again, he hasn't. But this is his moment of clarity. His one chance to have a face-to-face with God, a dream about how God cares for him. To hear the voice of God saying, I will never leave you. and My promise is as good as gold, as good as written. It's as good as a paper it's written on, and it's always good with God. We can all relate to Jacob. We have our moments of clarity in church. We sing and we praise, and then we go right back to what we did before. We return to the empty promises of this world and the familiarity of our favorite sins far too quickly. Our moments with God are supposed to change us, Right? but we do exactly the same thing as Jacob. Read on verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head, set it up for a pillar poured oil on the top of it, and he called the name of the place Beth-el. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Beth-el, you know, you know what that word means? House of God. Beth means house, and El means God. Hebrews love to stick their words together. Beth-el means house of God the certain place jacob said this must be where god is and that means something to jacob but he, what he didn't know this place already was significant now this is going to blow your socks off look at this genesis 12:8 abraham has already been to this place jacob didn't know it his grandfather had already spent time in this place from there the bible says he moved to the hill country this is abraham now on the east of what city church On the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there Abraham built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. This is when Abraham was coming into the land. Guess where he stopped? He stopped at Bethel. This is the first place Abraham built an altar to the Lord. And when Abraham wandered from God because of the famine down into Egypt and realized, hey, I should have stayed in the promised land the whole time, God said, get out of this place. He turns around, comes back into the promised land. Guess where he comes back to? Take a guess. Bethel, and you know what he did there? He built an altar to the Lord. He journeyed from Nagab as far as Bethel to the place where the tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Little did he know his grandson would be at this very place in need of a voice, to hear a voice from God. And by the way, just to give you a little view ahead, Jacob and Esau do reconcile. Guess where Jacob reconciles with Esau? Any guess? Bethel. fell. Twenty years later, he would reconcile with his brother, and he would build in Genesis thirty-five seven. He would build an altar to God. This is a place of redos, a do-overs. This is a place where you get to see God face to face. Verse twenty. Jacob made a vow saying, if God is with me and will keep me in the way that I should go and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I will come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob is making a vow to God based on an if-then statement. How many of you have been out of school long enough to forget what an if-then statement is? If-then statement means, if you do something for me, then I will do something for you. Does this sound like what God does for us? No. It's the opposite of what God does for us. But for Jacob, he said, if God blesses me, then I will worship him. And you look at that. How many people like that? You like that? You think Jacob should have been a little more mature, done a covenant idea rather than a if-then statement, right? Right? Lest you go too hard on Jacob, you do realize the only reason you love God is because He first loved you. In fact, anything that we receive from God or anything that we give to Him only was given to us by Him first. It's interesting. We have a tendency to live on the if-then level more than we think. We trust Him tomorrow because he showed himself faithful in the past. We know God will provide for us, because he provides for the birds of the air. Jesus taught this way. If God provides for the birds of the air, how much more will he provide for you? In other words, if you're wondering if you can trust God, look at the if-then statement. If God has done this, then he will surely do this. The truth is, God always moves the needle first, and then we respond. All right, back to your uh, task for the day. The question is, who is the most unreasonable character in this story? Remember who we're dealing with. Isaac has a broken heart, but is sworn to complete his duty to make sure the blessing goes completely to where it started going. Tried to give it to Esau, got deceived by Jacob, but it is his greatest duty in life to get that blessing out. And so he makes sure that Jacob gets the blessing and the birthright together and sends him off safely away from Esau. Did Isaac act unreasonable? No, I don't think so. Any dad probably would have done the same thing, right? You have to give to somebody, even though it was stolen, your job before God is to make sure that it goes out clear to the person that started receiving it. So protect it, send Jacob away. How about Jacob? Jacob is running for his life. Reasonable or unreasonable? Reasonable. How about Esau? Reasonable or unreasonable? Now wait a second. Esau's been ripped off. Jacob stole everything from him. And Esau wants to kill him. I can't have this blessing, Esau says, so no one's going to get this blessing. God, you should not have let Jacob do this to me, but because you did, and I was defrauded, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and I'm going to kill my brother. Took away from him the most important thing of his life. So he wants to kill him. Reasonable or unreasonable? I think it's reasonable. It's reasonable in the world in which we live. It would be unreasonable for Esau to say, Hey, Jacob, you stole it. Good for you. God bless you. I'll just go do something different over here. That would be unreasonable. I think it's reasonable. So who's the only one acting unreasonable? You know who it is? It's God. God is the only one in this story acting unreasonable. Why? Because he could have, should have squished Jacob like a gnat. But instead of doing that, what does he do? He blesses him. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He said, wherever you go, I'm going I'm to be right there. I'm going to be blessing every step you take. It is unreasonable for God to bless a swindler. That is unreasonable. Look at his own words. Verse 15, Behold, God says, I am with you, I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what is promised to you. And I'm here to tell you, church, that makes no sense to me. Everyone is sending Jacob away for one reasonable reason or another. But God is saying, I will never send you away. I'll go with you wherever you go. So here's your first so what, church. Number one, in God's kingdom, unreasonableness is the norm. And what do I mean by that? Rebecca is reasonable to send Jacob away. Isaac is reasonable to send Jacob away to protect his life. Esau is reasonable to be bitter and want his brother dead. The only one in the story being unreasonable is God because God gives Jacob a great gift by saying exactly what Jacob needed to hear when he needed to hear it. He's alone. He's got nobody. He's got nothing but the clothes on his back. So God visits him in the middle of the night, this scared, swindler, deceitful individual, and says, listen, don't fret. I am with you. Alone and afraid, wrong and flawed, God reminds Jacob, You are mine, and I still have a great plan for your life. God's economy is based on this whole story being carried out in an unreasonable way. Think about the unreasonableness of this. It is unreasonable for God to become flesh. That is unreasonable. It is unreasonable for God's creation to be able to kill their own God. That is unreasonable. It's unreasonable for God to forgive rebels while they're in their rebellion. It's unreasonable for God to pay the penalty for sins he never committed. All of those things are unreasonable. The cross is unreasonable, and that's why it's a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others, because it doesn't make sense. But in God's realm, in God's economy, he loves to do the unreasonable. And then you know what? He asks us, to do unreasonable things. Don't you love that about him? Here's some of the things he asks from us. It is unreasonable to forgive somebody when they're picking a fight with you. It is reasonable to punch back. God says, no, not in my kingdom. If somebody strikes you first, then you turn the other cheek. It is unreasonable to turn the other cheek to somebody who's hurting you it is reasonable to hold a grudge against somebody who hurt you it is it is unreasonable to prefer others above yourself it is reasonable to have sex with a person that you're going to marry someday it is unreasonable to save sex for marriage it is reasonable to think that religion will change over time it is unreasonable to think that god never changes and his character is always the same yesterday today and tomorrow listen Living in the kingdom means doing a lot of unreasonable things. We live by faith, not by sight. That is unreasonable. We lose our life so that we will find it. We are servant because being a servant is greater than being a leader in the kingdom of God. We forgive those who mistreat us. We pray for those who persecute us. We give, we give drinks to our enemies when they're thirsty. And we pray blessings on them when they try and hurt us back. God asks us to love others regardless of who they are as God loves us. Those are all unreasonable requests. But in the kingdom of God, we mirror the heart of our unreasonable God. Do you know what's most unreasonable? That God would love you and God would love me in the middle of our rebellion. Even while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. God is grappling with grapplers to show us his grace. And the grappler is not Jacob. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, church, the grappler is not Jacob. The grappler is me. I am the one. I saw myself way too high on the scale. Because the Bible doesn't call me a friend of God until it makes sure that I know I am an enemy of God. And that's where I started this process. Until God bestowed his love on me, I and God had issues. But God reached down to me. And God put up with this grappler. And God gave this grappler purpose in life in the most unreasonable way. Because that's who our God is. Let me take it to Ephesians 2, 1 to 9, in case you're still struggling with this. Here's the truth about every one of us. You were what church? What does it mean to be dead? Not alive. Not breathing. Can dead people move? Will you ever see dead people walking around in the church someday? That you were dead in trespasses and sins. You couldn't make a move to God because you were dead. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan. You followed Satan. <laughs> Rough language, right? following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience all around you, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of the mind. That is the truth about us. Now here's the reasonable part that comes next. And you were by nature children of what, church? That's reasonable. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We deserve the wrath of God. Like, if we sat down and spent 10 minutes together talking about what your life has been like over the last, what, 10, 20, 40, 80 years? How about the last week? How many things have we done to tick God off, to disappoint the God who bought us with his blood? So we sit down, we talk about it, and then we say, well, but God loves me anyway. Seriously? That sounds pretty unreasonable to me. But it's true. It's true. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now here comes the unreasonable part. But God, I love it. But God, everything stops. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with His Son, Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is the unreasonable part. It doesn't stop there. Here's more unreasonableness. And raised us up with him and seated with us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. That means in this life, God just wants to lavish blessings on you. And when you die, God just wants to lavish more blessings on you. Why? Because you're wonderful. You're, you're, you're marvelous. You're, you're fantastic. And anybody would want to do that if they really got to know the real you. No, it's because of his great love for us. And there's no explanation for it except that we serve an unreasonable God. Unless you think that's like as unreasonable it gets, here's the most unreasonable part. It's in the next verse. For by grace you have been saved through what church? Read this with me. And this is not, read it, not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one would boast. That is most unreasonable because that means no matter how hard you try to climb the moral mountain, you never will make it to the top. Nobody will ever stand before God and say, "Ah, aren't you lucky I'm here? God knows you and He knows me and He loves you anyway. And there's no way for you to reach Him, so you know what He did? He reached down to get you by killing his only son dying on the cross to give you a way home on his son's broken back you crawled out of hell on the broken back of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ now if that's not unreasonable I'd like for you to tell me what is number two once God invests in you you're his for good isn't that good? Once God invests in you, you, you're good to go. Have you ever looked around, maybe like Jacob with his head on the rock, waiting for sleep in the middle of the night to take him over, and thought to yourself, how in the world did I ever get here? How did I dig a hole this deep? How did this start? You might have made some decisions that led you down a road you never thought you'd travel, said some things that damaged the relationship. You You thought you'd never say those things out loud to that person chose some activities in life that opened a door to painful situations. And now you feel the weight of those choices and you just pray to God for a do-over. Like Jacob. Listen, I'm here to tell you God will be faithful to you even in the middle of your most embarrassing sin because God chooses us, we don't choose Him. And He loves to choose those who realize they really shouldn't be chosen in the first place. Jacob, not Esau. Isaac, not Ishmael. Joseph, not his brother, Saul before David. John, sa- John says to us in the Gospel, Jesus says to us in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit. Your fruit should abide, and whatever you ask in the Father's name, he will give it to you. You know why? Because God makes his promises contingent on nothing we've done but everything he's done. In this world, if you belong to Jesus Christ, there's no place you can go, no hole you can dig to get away from God. That's a good thing to remember if you're a prodigal that needs to come home, by the way. Don't stay away too long. Don't waste the time. Don't let 20 years pass. Come home now. Bow the knee to Jesus now. Make things right with God before another year passes. Make things right with God before another day passes. God's been chasing you down or you wouldn't be here today to hear this crazy message about some guy that has a nap in the middle of the wilderness. Maybe you need to get baptized. We keep announcing this so that we can get the news out that we're having a baptism class. Maybe you've been thinking about it. Maybe you were baptized as an infant and you think, I'm good to go, but you've never really researched in Scripture. Is that the right way to do things? Join us for our baptism class next week. Maybe you need to get baptized. Maybe you need to make a phone call make things right with somebody before another day goes by. I tell you, I've done, I've done funerals for people who hated each other and wouldn't sit near one another. And I would go up to them and I'd be friends with them on this side and them on this side, but they weren't friends with each other. This one particular funeral that I did, it was kids that wouldn't talk to each other. And I went up to the one kid that wouldn't talk to the other kids. They're 40 years old, they know better now. I went up to the one adult and I said, why haven't you talked to your sister? And she said, we've been fighting for the last 30 years. I said, over what? I don't remember, but it was bad. <laughs> I kid you not. And my heart breaks. They're at their mother's funeral, and they won't talk to each other. Don't let, don't let it get to that. Make the phone call. Make it right. Time's too short. Forgive that person before forgiveness loses its power in that situation. And for God's sake, pray. If you don't spend time praying, you've got to add this to your repertoire. Pray, pray every day make a specified time in your life to pray we'll give you stuff to pray about pray all the time redeem the time now surrender your difficult situation to jesus listen the moral of the story is you were never alone you are never alone you may feel like it you may be in situations where you think nobody knows what i'm going through god does otherwise he wouldn't give us stories like this some loser in the middle of the desert in the middle of the wilderness fill in all alone, and God comes to him and gives him that first phrase, I'll never let you be alone. The beginning to us to remind us that we are never alone as well. Don't neglect the unreasonable grace of God. Run home. Give it up. Ask for forgiveness. Make it right. Follow Christ. Raise your kids so that they know Christ. Redeem your time. Because you probably have no idea how much you have left. Let's pray. Father, we come to the end of this message, and it's it's an interesting one about a grappler that fought for every inch he thought was his. Deceiving others, hurting others, whatever he needed to do to get what he wanted. And it's so easy to judge somebody like that, and yet when we look at it this way, it just reminds us of somebody that we know all too well. The person we see in the mirror. And things that we do that we're not proud of, that we hide from each other. And we certainly hope you never know about. But it's a good reminder to us, Father, that you're with us, no matter where we go or how deep the holes get that we dig. So, Father, thank you that you never leave us, you never forsake us. Thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit who is with us wherever we go. Thank you for that for us as believers. We know that no matter what happens in life, what battlefield we are on, what challenges we face, what relationships are hurting, that you walk through it with us, no matter what it is or who it's about. Convince us, Father, that we are never alone. And thank you for this great truth given to a rebel so many years ago, but so applicable to us rebels today. We give you our thanks for being a God who never leaves. In Jesus' name, amen.